This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When skeptics attempt to poke holes in conspiracy theories, they often point to something psychologists call apophenia. This is the natural tendency people have to make connections between seemingly random or unrelated events. We humans are hardwired to see patterns everywhere, even when there aren't any. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that connections don't exist and that some conspiracies aren't real. Sometimes when you hear the facts surrounding a series of events, it's impossible not to speculate if there might be some deeper connection. Take, for example, the large number of Indian nuclear scientists who died within recent years under unusual circumstances. In October 2013, Indian authorities found the bodies of two high-ranking nuclear engineers dead on some railroad tracks. K.K. Josh and Abhishek Shivam were two of the engineers on India's first nuclear-powered submarine. Their bodies were discovered and removed from the tracks before a train could crush them. Both the Indian media and the Ministry of Defense were quick to describe the men's deaths as routine accidents. The problem is autopsies showed that both men were already dead before they were found on the train tracks. Foul play was quickly ruled out even though no marks were found on the bodies and the cause of death remains undetermined. Although some reports allege the men were poisoned before being laid out on the tracks. These were just the latest in a long list of suspicious deaths of several Indian nuclear scientists. Between 2009 and 2013, 11 nuclear scientists died unnaturally. Most of them were reported as accidents or suicides. Although India actually has a history of suspicious deaths of their top scientists going back even further. Homi Jangar Baba was one of the fathers of India's nuclear program. Baba died in a plane crash on January 24, 1966, shortly after making the public announcement that India was prepared to begin production of its first nuclear weapons. But on his way to Vienna, Baba's plane crashed near Mont Blanc. Rumors began to circulate soon after the crash occurred that the CIA may have been involved. In 2013, journalist Gregory Douglas conducted interviews with former CIA operative Robert Crowley, who implied the CIA planted a bomb on board the plane to assassinate Baba and bring a halt to India's nuclear program. But Baba's death in 1966 wasn't the last death of a nuclear scientist to raise red flags. Flash forward to June 2008 and another scientist named Lokanathan Mahalingam who worked at the Kaya atomic power station in Karnataka, mysteriously disappeared after going out on a morning walk. His body was discovered five days later, although foul play was not considered in the man's death. Some journalists questioned why the man's body was so quickly cremated before many forensic tests were performed. The death of an engineer at the Baba Atomic Research Center, which incidentally was named after Homi Baba, also raised suspicions. In February 2010, M. Padmanabhan Iyer was found dead in his home. 
No fingerprints or clues were found at the crime scene, and investigators ended up listing the cause of death as unexplained. The following year, Uma Rao, another retired scientist from the Bark, was also found dead. Her cause of death was reported as a suicide following a lengthy battle with chronic depression. A suicide note was found at the scene, although several of Rao's colleagues later reported they had never seen or heard any sign of depression in the woman. Even Rao's own family contested the official verdict on her death. In December 2009, two more nuclear scientists at the Baba Atomic Research Center, Umang Singh and Partha Pratim Bag, mysteriously burned to death. At least in this instance, there was no denying foul play since both of their charred bodies were found bound in the radiation and photochemistry lab. Nothing else flammable was discovered in the lab with them. In 2012, 24-year-old Mohammed Mustafa, a scientist at the Indira Gandhi Center for Atomic Research, was found dead in his apartment with his wrist slashed. His death was declared a suicide. In March of 2013, Titus Paul, another scientist who worked at the Bark, was found hanging from the ventilators of her campus residence in another apparent suicide. Her father told authorities he had just spoken to his daughter shortly before her body was discovered and that she had not seemed despondent at all. In 2009, Dahlia Nayak, a senior researcher at the Saha Institute of Nuclear Science, reportedly committed suicide by consuming mercuric chloride. Although police reports described Nayak as depressed and suicidal, friends and family members said the woman was fun-loving and upbeat about the future. In 2010, another nuclear scientist, 30-year-old Turamala Process Tenka, was also found hanged to death. The suicide note found at the scene described Tenka's mental anguish brought on by one of his superiors at work. Although most of these deaths were officially reported as suicides, not everyone in India is convinced. Journalist Madhav Nalapat was one of the first people to report the pattern of suspicious deaths. He believes there's something more sinister going on. But the Indian authorities disagree. Madhav was astonished to learn that the police have refused to investigate these deaths any further and that they insist there is no common thread to tie them together in any way. An activist named Cretan Kotari has also tried to raise public alarm about the growing number of suspicious deaths, but to no avail. He petitioned the Indian government to form a special commission to investigate further, but his request fell on deaf ears. Kotari has claimed that no fewer than 680 employees of the Bark have died over the past 15 years although some officials at the bar have pointed to a different common cause of death that doesn't involve murder, cancer. In total, 2,600 lives were lost to cancer at 19 Indian nuclear facilities, including several reported deaths at the bark. Even still, conspiracy theories continue to swirl around the string of deaths in India's nuclear industry. The question remains, though, to what end? The common conspiracy theory has always been that these deaths have been performed by covert intelligence agencies, such as the CIA, to slow the pace of India's nuclear weapons program. But India has been a nuclear power for decades, and it doesn't seem like all these alleged murders have achieved the desired effect. This isn't the first time, though, that a series of mysterious deaths in the defense industry have raised suspicions. Back in Britain in the 1980s, nearly two dozen scientists and engineers, many of whom all worked for the same defense contractor, all died under suspicious circumstances. Was it merely a series of tragic coincidences, as the British authorities insist? 
Just another case of apophenia at work? Or was this a series of targeted assassinations and foreign espionage? In this episode, I'm going to tell you all about it and let you be the judge. I'm Nate Hale, the Austin Powers of the podcasting world, and this is The Conspirators. I call upon the scientific community in our country, those who gave us nuclear weapons to turn their great talents now to the cause of mankind and world peace, to give us the means of rendering these nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. President Ronald Reagan spoke those words on March 23, 1983, thus sparking the beginning of one of the most elaborate and complex defense systems ever conceived. This new missile defense system was officially called the Strategic Defense Initiative, but became known by its more relatable nickname, Star Wars. The U.S. government planned on developing a vast network of laser-armed satellites, electromagnetic railguns, and air and land-based missiles that could be used to intercept any intercontinental ballistic missiles launched by the Soviet Union and other enemy nations. The plan was for this all to be coordinated by a highly advanced network of supercomputers that would be able to anticipate and prevent any attack within seconds. The United States and the Soviet Union had each been toying with the concept of an anti-ballistic missile defense system for decades. During the 1960s, the U.S. created the Nike Zeus missile system, which had some capabilities of shooting down enemy weapons. Likewise, the Soviets came up with their own similar missile defense system. But neither system was advanced enough to cope with a full-scale nuclear attack. In 1972, the two world superpowers signed an anti-ballistic missile treaty that would strictly limit the number of missile interceptors each nation could possess. In 1976, the U.S. closed its only missile defense system, called Safeguard. This had only been in use for a few years after being determined to be too costly and inefficient to keep running. But by the 1980s, increased tensions with the Soviets caused the Pentagon's Joint Chiefs of Staff to want to revisit the idea of a widespread missile defense system. They presented the idea to President Reagan, who wholeheartedly agreed that such a system was vital for the country's defense. But although the goals of the plan were widely seen as essential, the actual execution of such plan was a lot more difficult. This would have been a program far bigger and more elaborate than anything the Pentagon had approached before. Much of the necessary technology, including weaponized lasers, electromagnetic railguns, and massive supercomputers able to predict and launch defensive missiles with pinpoint accuracy didn't even exist yet, and might not exist for decades more to come. The central part of this system would have involved a vast network of thousands of advanced satellites able to detect and even fire lasers at Soviet nuclear missiles. President Reagan himself admitted such a program could take until the end of the century to fully implement. Not only was this program deemed beyond any technology currently available, it also worried a number of opponents to the program who feared this would only expand the nuclear arms race into outer space. The idea of there being swarms of heavily armed laser-based satellites surrounding the globe would have been a frightening possibility to a lot of people. And undoubtedly, the Soviet Union would have responded in kind, or at the very least would do everything in their power to ensure such a system never succeeded. The projected cost of such a system would go on to balloon into the hundreds of billions of dollars. 
and would take up a substantial percentage of the annual U.S. military defense budget. Since so much of this technology still didn't even exist, that meant numerous defense contractors around the world were hired to work on different aspects of this project. This included a British firm known as GEC Marconi, the defense arm of the General Electric Company. Prior to this, the company had been in the defense business for almost a century. During both world wars, the company was responsible for building radios and bulbs for military operations, as well as the newly created technology known as radar. Many GEC Marconi scientists would go on to work on the Stingray Torpedo Project and eventually be hired for the United States Star Wars Initiative. But it was during this period in the 1980s when several British journalists began to notice the unusual number of deaths of scientists and engineers all working for GEC Marconi and related defense contractors. The strange series of events all seemed to begin in March 1982 when Dr. Keith Bowden, a contractor for Marconi, died in a car crash on his way home from a party. According to the official record, Bowden drove his car down an embankment into an abandoned rail yard while driving alone home at night. Although police originally claimed Bowden had been driving both drunk and too fast, his wife and lawyer claimed otherwise. They hired a private investigator to look into the matter further. The investigator learned from friends who attended the same party that Bowden had not been drinking that night. Even more perplexing, the investigator discovered that someone had swapped the tires on Bowden's new rover with a set that were bald and dangerous to drive on. The following year, in April 1983, 49-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Godley, who headed the work-study unit at the Royal College of Military Science, disappeared without explanation. Now, admittedly, it's possible the man's disappearance may not be related to the other cases described here, but it is worth noting simply because of the work the man did and how little is known about how and where he vanished. In March 1985, a radar designer named Roger Hill shot and killed himself with a shotgun in his home. In November of that same year, 29-year-old digital communications expert Jonathan Walsh, who had also worked at Marconi, died from falling out a hotel window in West Africa. Prior to his death, it's been reported that the man had told close colleagues he felt worried that his life was in danger. Things became even more puzzling in August 1986 when Vimal Dajabai, a 24-year-old computer scientist from Marconi, apparently jumped to his death. But the circumstances surrounding Dajabai's death are strange to say the least. According to the official report, in August 1986, Dajabai drove over 100 miles from his home to Bristol, a city where he had no friends or other connections. This was where he reportedly pulled over in the middle of the Clifton Suspension Bridge. Then, according to the police, he walked to the edge of the bridge and jumped, plummeting 200 feet to his death. At the time of the man's death, he was in his last week of work with Marconi. Police would later claim that Dodgeby was despondent in his last few weeks on Earth. But this is something friends and relatives deny. They also claimed that he had been seen drinking with a friend and that a bottle of wine and two used paper cups were discovered in his car. But once again, people who knew Dodgeby swore he had never touched a drop of alcohol in his life. Despite what the police claimed, the coroner reported another open verdict in the man's death. Noting that his pants were discovered down around his ankles and an unusual puncture mark was found on his upper buttock. After this was revealed, the man's funeral was halted mere minutes before he was due to be cremated. Members of the family were told the body was to be put through a second post-mortem examination, something that is practically unheard of. 
Then a few months later, the police issued a follow-up report claiming the puncture wound on the man's buttock was not actually a puncture mark in the traditional sense, and rather was the result of a shard of bone piercing the skin. But none of this sat well with the coroner who would go on to declare that it was a mystery then, and it remains a mystery now. Then just two months later, tragedy struck again, in an even more disturbing fashion. That was when Arshad Sharif, a 26-year-old computer scientist who also worked at Marconi, died in yet another reported suicide. But the way this man allegedly committed suicide is almost beyond belief. Like Dajabai, Sharif also drove to Bristol. Only this time he took his car up a hill. Then he proceeded to tie one end of a nylon cord around a tree and tied the other end around his neck. Then, according to the police, Sharif got into his car and jammed his foot down on the accelerator, the resulting force of which decapitated him. Police would later claim the man had been despondent over the breakup with a girlfriend. But other conflicting stories claim that the breakup actually occurred three years earlier. Then the woman in question apparently denied having any sort of relationship with Sharif, and that she had actually been his landlady, not his lover. Once these conflicting details began to emerge, police changed their story as well. They then began telling reporters that it turned out Sharif was engaged to a woman in Pakistan, only she had jilted him for another man overseas. According to further reports, the day before his death, Sharif appeared in town acting strangely. He rented a hotel room for the night, paying cash with large denomination banknotes. A relative who was summoned to the scene of Sharif's death noticed something unusual in the car. There was a metal rod on the floor of the car near the accelerator. Was it possible someone had wedged it onto the accelerator? The police didn't think so. But the coroner wasn't so quick to dismiss the unusual circumstances of both these deaths. He said, This is past coincidence. I will not be completing this inquest until I know how two men with no connection to Bristol came to meet the same end here. The coroner never got any more answers. But some investigative journalists later learned that both men appeared to be working on a top-secret project called Cosmos, an underwater guidance system that was related to the American Strategic Defense Initiative, a.k.a. Star Wars. Now keep in mind, throughout the early to mid-1980s, thousands of people worked in the UK's defense industry. So at this point, the number of unusual deaths still remained statistically low. But within just a few years, those numbers climbed dramatically. And soon, the British press and even some MPs began to take notice. In 1987, another computer expert within the defense industry named Richard Pugh was found dead under bizarre circumstances. He was discovered dead in his flat, his feet and torso bound with rope, and a plastic bag tied around his head. The coroner's verdict was that the man died due to a sexual misadventure. Just days later, another scientist in the defense industry, Dr. John Britton, was found dead in his garage of carbon monoxide poisoning. The following month, another GEC Marconi engineer, David Skeels, was also found dead of carbon monoxide poisoning. He was found dead in his car with a length of hose connected to the exhaust. That same month, yet another defense engineer died. Officially, Victor Moore died from a drug overdose. Some stories also claim the man's death actually spurred a secret investigation by MI5, the British Secret Service, although the results of this investigation remain secret. Peter People became yet another victim of carbon monoxide poisoning, but his death is of particular note because of the unusual circumstances surrounding it. 
People's death was particularly concerning because even the police had to concede his death was unlikely to be a suicide. After spending an evening with some friends playing Trivial Pursuit, people went out to the garage to put away the car. The following morning, his wife found his body jammed underneath the car with his mouth next to the exhaust pipe. Police were forced to admit the position of the body made it impossible to shut the garage from the outside and still climb beneath the car, as apparently had been done, meaning there had to be someone else there. Ultimately, the coroner entered an open verdict in the case. John Whiteman was another apparent suicide, although once again the facts of the case don't completely add up. He was found dead in his bathtub, his body surrounded by pills and empty alcohol bottles. But the autopsy showed no trace of drugs or alcohol in his system. The following month, David Sands, a senior scientist working on computer-controlled radar at his sister company, Tamarconi, also died in a high-speed car crash. It's believed that while driving, he made a sudden U-turn, then drove straight into an empty cafe. At the same time, his vehicle had been loaded with multiple cans of gasoline, which erupted upon impact, turning the car into a fireball. Sands' body was so charred, he was only identified by his dental records. April of 1987 was a big month for strange deaths surrounding the British defense industry, and especially G.E.C. Marconi. Besides Richard Pugh, there was also 23-year-old Stuart Gooding, who died on April 10th in a fatal car crash while on holiday in Cyprus. He died in a head-on collision with a truck driver. On the very same day, 46-year-old David Robert Greenhog also died. He had been a contracts manager with a defense firm. On April 10th, he died after jumping from a railway bridge on his way to work in Berkshire. Later, the firm Greenhog worked for would reveal he had been working on the very same project that David Sands had been working on. The very same David Sands who died two weeks earlier in a fiery car wreck. But the coincidences don't stop there. Also on April 17th, 26-year-old Shawnee Warren drowned. She had been a personal assistant in a company that was taken over by G.C. Marconi only a month after her death. She was found gagged with a noose around her neck. Her feet were bound and her hands were tied behind her back. She drowned face down in 18 inches of water. Police claimed she had somehow managed to tie herself up, then committed suicide by hobbling on stiletto heels to the lake where she drowned. That very same day, yet another unusual drowning occurred. This time was when George Kuntis, a systems analyst at Bristol Polytechnic, died in an accident. His upturned car was found in the River Mercy in Liverpool with Kuntis still in it. On April 26th, yet another death occurred in a fashion that was eerily similar to that of Richard Pugh. 24-year-old Mark Wisner was found dead of asphyxiation in his home. His head was completely covered in plastic wrap. Like Richard Pugh, the coroner's verdict was death by sexual misadventure. In 1986, Marconi bought the defense electronics firm Plessy. Just a year later, over the course of two months, two of its employees were also found dead. 22-year-old Michael Baker died in a car wreck on May 3rd. Then a month later in June, 60-year-old weapons engineer Frank Jennings was found dead of an apparent heart attack. The year 1988 kicked off with the defense lab technician Russell Smith's death. The 23-year-old reportedly jumped off a cliff in Cornwall. Then in March, Trevor Knight, a senior computer engineer at Marconi, also died by asphyxiating from carbon monoxide in his car. A female friend who also worked in Marconi reportedly found three different suicide notes written by the man. Then in August of 1988, two of the most gruesome deaths occurred. 
both involving senior figures, both in Marconi and in the defense industry as a whole. According to reports, 50-year-old Alistair Beckham was a senior computer engineer who was believed to be working on several top-secret projects for America's Star Wars program. If the official story is to be believed, Beckham spent his Sunday afternoon gardening and trimming some bushes. Immediately after, Beckham went inside his garden shed, shoved a handkerchief into his mouth, attached a strip length of wire to his chest, and jammed the other end into an electrical socket, then flipped on the light switch. One of Beckham's twin daughters spotted his body through the shed window. The authorities had difficulty opening the door because of the way his body was wedged inside the tiny space. Something else curious investigators noticed about the shed was that at some point, Beckham had installed a small peephole inside the shed that looked out in the yard. His wife had no explanation why her husband would have done this. Also curious was that within hours of the man's death, several officials from the intelligence community showed up at Beckham's house and removed a number of confidential documents. All this would have been strange enough on its own, but within another month, a very similar electrocution happened yet again. This time, the victim was 60-year-old John Ferry, a senior director with Marconi. Ferry had been one of the top defense consultants in the British government. Every two weeks, he flew to NATO headquarters to give briefings to officials on defense matters. His death bore some striking similarities to that of Alistair Beckham. Only in this instance, Barry attached the stripped wires to the metal fillings inside his mouth before electrocuting himself. One of the last unusual deaths that often gets cited with all the others is that of 33-year-old Andrew Hall, an engineering manager with British Aerospace. He too, like a lot of the others, died of carbon monoxide poisoning in a car with a length of hose running from the exhaust. And again, like so many of the others, his death was reportedly a suicide. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Before we continue, I need to take a moment to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Manscaped. It's time for a Manscaped product alert. Because you asked for it, they listened. Our friends at Manscaped just brought back the Ultra Smooth Package. It's time to stop and order this premium shaving kit. Everyone knows by now that the Lawnmower 4.0 is the best electric shave for your balls. But if you're looking for a closer shave to be bare down there, then the Ultra Smooth Package is the perfect set. Time to shave that bush of yours. Get right down to the roots with a discount just for you. You can get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the code CONSPIRATORS. The Ultra Smooth Package is a specialized groin shaving kit to help you buff, protect, and smooth your most sensitive areas. I'm talking crop shaver razor, crop exfoliator, and crop gel. Men, you no longer have to borrow your lady's razor for that precise trim. Look, anyone who's ever done any sort of shaving knows there is always difficult to get, I mean, grown hairs, or worse, those places that are just plain out of reach. The Manscaped Ultra Smooth Package is a three-step kit to make your package the perfect package. Exfoliate, gel, and shave. But first, you want to grab your handy lawnmower 4.0 and give your boys the classic trim to your liking to get the loose hairs out of the way and then take out the Manscaped Ultra Smooth Package to get that ultra-close shave. Step 1. Crop Exfoliator. Infused with ingredients that can soothe, clear, and keep the skin on and around your groin feeling refreshed, the Crop Exfoliator can help reduce the risk of ingrown hairs in your delicate places. Step 2. Crop Gel. See where you're shaving with our unique clear shaving gel just for the groin. 
With four essential oils, it's like a spa treatment every time you shave. Step three, it's time to shave. The Crop Shaver tool was designed for shaving the groin area with confidence. This razor has three precision blades, including extra-wide lubricating strips and a pivoting head for the ultimate groin grooming experience. The Crop Shaver is not your average razor. It's smaller, thicker, with a micro-comb bar that allows for the best shape possible from any angle. Beach balls are meant to be smooth, and now yours can be too. All three of these vegan, cruelty-free, and sulfate-free products are included so you know your manhood is in good hands and without compromise. It's time to get up and close and personal with the best tools for the job, the Ultra Smooth Package from Manscaped. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code CONSPIRATORS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code CONSPIRATORS at manscaped.com. Smooth out your fellows with the relaunched Ultra Smooth Package from the fellows at Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. And now... Back to the show. So what are we to make of all these deaths? As the numbers continue to grow, several reporters began to take notice and also began to speculate if there was something more going on here than simple coincidence. One of the first reporters to become aware of the Marconi deaths was Tony Collins, a reporter for the trade publication Computer Weekly. He received a tip early on about the unusual deaths, which led him to begin his own investigation. Despite rising public suspicions, the conservative Margaret Thatcher government insisted these were all unrelated tragic accidents and suicides. Collins was shocked to learn that after he submitted a Freedom of Information request to the Ministry of Defense looking for more information, that the MOD had no recorded information on any of these cases. As Collins wrote, it was as if the deaths never happened. But despite the official line from the government that there was nothing to this string of deaths, Not everyone in a position of power was so convinced. After the prestigious Sunday Times published a series of articles cataloging the many suspicious deaths, as many as 22 by that point, and some say even more, some members of British Parliament began demanding answers. Labour MP Doug Hoyle petitioned the Thatcher government demanding an official inquiry into the Marconi deaths, but his appeal was rejected outright. Many skeptics who claim there really is nothing suspicious about the large number of suicides throughout these instances point out that the defense industry is a pretty high-stress profession to be in. The literal fate of the world is in some of these people's hands, and the job can be demanding to the point of impossibility. The wife of John Whitman, the man whose body was found in his bathtub surrounded by booze and pill bottles, told reporters that her husband had been increasingly stressed in the days before his death over what he described as an impossible assignment. It has also been noted that several of these individuals were at the end of their careers and were either quitting Marconi or retiring, which has caused some believers in the conspiracy to speculate if someone in the intelligence community decided it would be better to eliminate these people than allow their top-secret knowledge out into the world. Over the years, several newspapers, including the London Times, began to openly speculate whether these deaths were related and were actually the result of foreign espionage. If that's the case, then the obvious villain to the story would be the KGB, since the Soviet Union would have had plenty of reasons to disrupt the U.S. plans to create their anti-ballistic missile system. There are even a few deaths throughout this era which were undeniably the work of foreign espionage. In 1986, Germany's lead scientist into the Star Wars program was murdered in a terrorist bombing. Later, two more bombings occurred at German labs doing related work. Within less than a month, a Swedish scientist doing underwater defense research disappeared along with all the testing equipment in his boat. 
The idea that foreign intelligence agencies might assassinate someone sounds like something straight out of a James Bond movie, but it isn't exactly unheard of either. Back in 1978, Bulgarian playwright Georgi Markov, who defected to the West nearly a decade earlier, died after being shot with a poison pellet fired from an umbrella gun by a stranger who bumped into him in London. If the desired result was to really disrupt plans for the Strategic Defense Initiative, then eventually the Russians got their wish. At least in a roundabout sort of way. By the time the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the Star Wars program was already on its way out. The entire program had proven too costly and ineffective, and a lot of the weapons invented for the purpose of shooting down foreign missiles never worked all that well. In 1993, the Clinton administration officially ended the SDI and redirected many of the funds to a different anti-ballistic missile program. Then in 2019, the Trump administration signed the National Defense Authorization Act, which helped restart plans for a space-based weapons system. At the time of this recording, it's unclear how far such a program will go. Today, there remains no clear answers on the Marconi murders, as they're often referred to. Were nearly two dozen people murdered by Soviet spies? Or were these just a series of unfortunate coincidences? It's impossible to know for certain. Mostly stories have just faded into obscurity with no further updates. There is one last story I'd like to mention, though. And that's the bizarre tale of 26-year-old Avatar Singh Gita, who had been conducting submarine warfare research reportedly tied to the Star Wars program. Gita was a contract worker for Marconi and was just three weeks away from completing his doctoral research on signal processing when he disappeared. On January 8, 1987, Singh Gita vanished just two days before his wedding anniversary. He'd even purchased his wife an anniversary gift that he never gave her. The man was last seen with a colleague near a reservoir in Derbyshire, where he'd been conducting research. The pair went their separate ways to lunch, only Singh Gita never returned. Police divers searched the reservoir expecting to find the man's body. He had been friends with Vimal Dajabai, and there was some concern he too might have taken his own life. Only Singh Gita's body never turned up. And that's for a good reason. You see, it turns out Singh Gita wasn't dead. He was discovered four months later on May 8, 1987, working in a Paris sweatshop under an assumed name along with a group of illegal immigrants. The computer scientist claimed to have no memory of his disappearance and had no explanation how he ended up living in a red light district in Paris. He eventually returned to his scientific work and forever after refused to talk about his bizarre disappearance with anyone. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Kaylee and Celidus0897 and Red Sonia's Mate for signing up and helping support the show. You're all amazing. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, signed thank you cards from yours truly, and especially our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review the Conspirators on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your five-star ratings and reviews helps us out a lot. They push us up the Apple's charts and simultaneously help spread the good word about the show to even more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also available in most of the places you get your podcasts, including Stitcher and Spotify. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. 
I also encourage you to follow us along on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Check us out there or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.